Welcome, welcome everyone to the Simon Dan podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again. It's episode 31. I'm still saying episode numbers. I'm going to carry on till I forget. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, joining me once again this week is my Everlaw co-host, the man who would wash his car every Saturday if he had one. It's Katz. Vauxhall Corsa, that is the uh, like that, that is like the the king of all cars, right? Wow, a Vauxhall. I don't know about can, that. can you only ever dream of owning a Vauxhall Corsa? <laughs> no, I've probably had one in my nightmare, but I wouldn't dream about it. Yeah, uh, how you been, mate? You're right, yeah, really good. Thanks, really, really good. Been dead, dead busy. What about yourself? Yeah, yeah, you've been busy. What have you been up to? What, what, what's, uh, what's made you? I'm, been... uh, I'm writing a textbook at the you're moment. You're not, I mentioned it. you're not. Oh my word, he's, he's writing a textbook, everyone. Um, uh, anyway, mate, I heard a joke today and I'm, I want to test this joke out on you because I think it's genius. Um, you might not Written. find it. It's a bit of a dad joke, but here we go. Well, you'll appreciate it, obviously, if it's a dad joke. Where do bad rainbows go? Where do bad rainbows go? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Go on. To prism. But don't worry. It's only a light <laughs> sentence. Hey! <laughs> what do you think, fantastic. mate? Do you like that? Loved it, loved yeah, it. Yeah, what, what can I say? Yeah. Well, let, I, I won't take any more jokes. Let's get our guest on. Uh, yeah. Joining us this week is a mechan- mechanical engineer turned TV host, podcaster and author. She's an Imperial College mentor and STEM ambassador. It's Dr. Shini Samara. Welcome and thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. That joke was awesome. Did you like that it? You can, you can have that joke if you want. Uh, I might use that a few yeah, times. Yeah. Yeah. It's bit, I would love to take credit for inventing it myself, but... Um, I, I, I don't take credit for things that I don't invent. So I read it and then I thought, cats were like that. That's fair <laughs> <laughs> um, So, so you join us on the Simon Dad podcast. Thank you so much for, for coming. Um, so what, what first got, let's get into the, the, the kind of the, the, the origins of your story. What first got you interested in science and engineering when you were young? Um, well, in a word, dad. Okay. Um, so cats will relate to this. Uh, and I, I kind of like, I was actually a creative kid. And so I was often in the dream world, uh, sketching and doing really arty things. At one point I really wanted to be a fashion designer. And so I was all things creative, but I have a very, um, sort of geeky dad, uh, who is an engineer himself, and he really wanted his daughters to pursue a science education. And, you know, he was quite strict about it, which is a very typical Sri Lankan dad approach. Right. And um, so I kind of put all of my creative interests to one side, and it was seen as, you know, those are the things you do for fun. And you could never, ever get a job in something like that. And I turned all of my attention to all the sciences and maths. And I wasn't actually very good at them to begin with. I was terrible at maths. Um, And, you know, I didn't really have a choice. You know, I was the plan was to take over my father's company when I grow up sort of thing. And um, so I just really had to be good at those subjects. And I plugged away at it. I really... You know, I got a few extra textbooks at WH Smith's um, and I was doing like all these extra problems and examples and just really putting all my 
energy and focus into these subjects. And then I think around the age of 15, the penny dropped and I found these subjects beautiful. I don't know what the switch was, yeah. but I went from feeling very intimidated by these subjects and, and quite frankly, hating them to absolutely loving them. And engineering then seemed like a very natural um, thing to do because I, I got to a point where I really wanted to understand how the world works. Yeah. And science really does help you to explain some of the marvels that we have on this planet. Absolutely. It's kind of a key age, isn't it? That that kind of mid-teen age. I mean, cats all agree. I mean, mm. teaching that sort of age group. Uh, I was quite similar, actually. I, I had no natural ability in science. Uh, I was quite good at maths, but sciences, I had to work really, really hard to, to get any sort of decent scores in, in, in tests and stuff. Yeah. I still find chemistry quite intimidating, like yeah. all those molar masses. Yeah, yeah. I might have to read your textbook. <laughs> they are quite abstract concepts yeah. aren't they science like it's quite like biology a lot of people look at it and say well they hear about the heart and the cardiovascular system and stuff like that in the real world but you don't because you don't hear about those things in the real world it's not the complicated but they are abstract you know and uh you know, i think that causes problems with kids a lot yeah and i think that's where maths um is quite intimidating because it is quite abstract but then it's so much more logical in my mind anyway, uh, compared to chemistry where there's just all these concepts that, I think you're right, like with biology, we come across a lot of what we study and we're like, okay, heart, we've all got one of those. Mm. Um, whereas with chemistry, it just was beyond me. Anyway, I didn't need it for engineering luckily, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't think science really is, uh, it comes naturally. And so it is something, and that's why I do a lot of work to encourage people into it because it's like, once the penny does drop, you're like, yeah. wow, this is actually really awesome. But you've yeah. got to get over that major speed bump for some of us. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about being creative. Cause I mean, Katz and I, we both, uh, we're both quite creative in our, our YouTube channels. And I think it's quite rare that you find people who are quite grounded in science and have that creative whim as well. Um, there definitely needs to be more people like that because the, the creativeness is kind of what makes it interesting, isn't it? I think we might be described as polymaths. Okay. Where we're using both our left brain and our right brain. Yeah. And for a long time, I kind of thought there was... Um, maybe something wrong with me that like, I just was so interested in both. Yeah. Um, because I think the educational system often tries to pigeon pigeonhole us. Yes. And um, I would love to live in a world where we're celebrated for having those different interests. I mean, definitely in the work that I've done in television, I'm often meeting people that um, cross pollinate subjects. Yeah. And so there is a meeting of like artists and scientists and then it, kind of gives birth to like new disciplines and so i just think all of it should be explored i mean yes what i think you really need for science is a curious mind and so you know that can be in any subject really Absolutely. yeah yeah I, I always explain myself as a master uh, a jack of all trades and a master of none when it comes to science yeah um, i've often said that about yeah. myself too um, I felt bad about it, and now I don't. Yeah, absolutely. Like, no, no, no need to feel bad about it at all. Um, you mentioned your TV work there, so you've worked on a host of TV shows. Um, is this something that kind of just happened, or, or were you always set on on that further science communication role? No, I wasn't set on it at all. Um, for me, it was engineering, engineering. I had this secret passion, as I said, for the art, so I loved going yeah. to theatres, and I loved fashion and um, just 
they were always outlets for me. It was kind of where I let off a bit of steam and just switched off from everything. Um, I never ever thought that you could combine them. And um, it was only towards the end of my doctorate when, um, you know, when you're writing a PhD, you often have to go to conferences and you have to tell people about your work. And there's like people from all over the world that get together to talk about ventilation or whatever the subject is. And um, what I really loved was being able to see the light bulbs switch on in people's minds. Um, So when I was talking about my area, which was computational fluid dynamics, you would see people kind of just suddenly get it. And I loved that process of explaining and trying to make it accessible and all of that. And so towards the end of my, my doctorate, I was thinking, how do I do that on a mass scale where I can just draw people in to the amazing work that people are doing in STEM and um, television just seemed like a good place to really reach a lot of people yeah but it's interesting because since then television has changed a lot and we're now a lot on digital Mm. media and you know there's amazing um, creators of content like yourselves that are just doing brilliant things and have the free reign because back then it was like four channels in the UK and there were really much of a platform but i think now the world has opened up yeah absolutely i don't know what it's like with you cats with the people that you have who uh interact with you but a lot of people say they don't watch normal tv they'll just watch youtube of an evening uh you know all their favorite content creators yeah yeah and it's great it is great part of me misses like when i was a kid um you know part of me misses looking through that tv guidance yeah. you know this is on thursday night yeah. nine o'clock and having that as a family time you know it Christ- is great and the christmas the the christmas tv christmas. guide Ga- indiana That's jones it. guaranteed on christmas eve or boxing day indiana jones yeah. all the time we do tomorrow's world watches oh yes. yeah i watch tomorrow's world yeah yeah, yeah. love that great. yeah yeah uh, do, that. Do, uh, and do you ever see how how to yeah, yeah. I, I i live right near fred donage and i used to play football with his son what? Yeah, that's my claim to fame. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. I, I yeah. once I once passed him in a in a petrol station forecourt, and I said how, and he completely ignored me. <laughs> so probably seen that a lot. Yeah, he's probably tired I'm of it. Over it. I'm over it. We're having a bad day. Um, so the first time I became aware of your work was through PBS's Crash Course Physics. Um, I was brushing up a lot on physics before I was making a lot of my videos uh, refuting conspiracy theories and stuff. How was that whole experience? Um, you know, it just keeps getting better Yeah. Uh, as an experience. Because when I was first asked to do it, you know, I'd done a lot of TV up until that point. And um, I was asked to do this like YouTube channel thing. And a lot of people that I was working with, especially from television, were like, oh, this is the beginning of the end. You know, once (laughs) you go digital, you know, you'll ruin your credibility in television. You know, it's not a good move. But I was really enticed by the idea that I could provide education for free through YouTube and, and reach people globally and make physics unintimidating and accessible and you know it's animated so it was really engaging to watch and and so i thought i'm going to do this for me i'm going to do this for me because i really want to be able to 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 educate in this way and it's been one of the best things i've ever done like the other day probably a couple of months ago now i did a count of how many views crash course physics has got and there's something like 50 episodes and it's had something like 43 million views wow yeah um in what five years yeah that's great so it's really it's it's it it 
warms my heart to think that I have helped so many young people with physics. And I often get a lot of feedback, really positive, just saying, you know, from, from young people as well as older people that maybe didn't feel that they could study physics at school because of whatever reasons it wasn't, you know, they didn't feel like they could study yeah. something like that. And anyway, they've gone back to it and they've, you know, checked out crash course physics in the comfort of their own home and sort of like, you know, they can not do so well with it, not understand it. They can rewatch it. They can pause it. They can do whatever they want with it. And it just is so, um, rewarding to think that a subject like physics which uh not many people are warm to has reached a lot of people yeah. so it, i'm just so happy that i've done it I, I don't know if you've seen it Kat, but I, I think it's so well done i mean you, you could you could be forgiven for thinking it's a proper tv show but it's, it's like a proper tv show that you can pretty much watch whenever you want yeah, well, I mean, of course, you know, I've been uh, brushing up on it, yeah. knowing that today was happening, and I'm, you know, it made me feel a bit, uh, a bit lame about my own YouTube channel. Actually. <laughs> I need, to, I need to up my standards, I think. Yeah, but uh, no, yeah, really impressive. Do you know what? It was such a great team working together. I can't take all the credit for it. Like there was just so many people that made that happen, and they all did it with absolute love and enthusiasm. Yeah, um, and it's just like it's one of those things. You know, when you just give, yeah. you know, there's no agenda, you just want to sort of like give for the sake of, and the joy of giving. Um, yeah. That's what I feel like Crash Course Physics was like. And, you know, a year later, we did Crash Course Engineering, which was another great series, I think, because um, not many people really know what engineering is. Yeah. And it's quite different from physics in the sense that it's a bit more nuts and bolts, like get your hands dirty type of profession. But not many people know what engineering is. You know, when you say, what is an engineer? We all have a stereotype. And I was really determined to sort of just give an insight into what engineering is because it's so massive as a profession, you know? And, and so, yeah, that was even more rewarding to think that maybe I could help change the, the stereotypes of engineers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've it's so good that we've got, hopefully, we've got the guy who does the Crash Course Astronomy coming on as well. Uh, oh, Philip, cool. I think it's Philip Play or Philip Platt. Um, he's coming on at some point next month. Um, the, the whole series is brilliant. And uh, uh, did you get involved? Were you involved in the writing or was there a, quite a group, big group of writers? So there was a, a group of writers, um, some physicists, um, and then there were people who weren't necessarily experts but were really good at making digital media yeah and then we had consultants and then you know when when a lot of the bulk of it because essentially we took a physics a level textbook or yeah. ap level which is advanced placement the a level equivalent in the states and we just chopped the textbook up into chunks and so once the actual script was written i was kind of at the end of the process going I can't say that because I, I literally don't think that makes sense. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I would never say it that way or that doesn't make sense to me. And so, you know, there really were so many different minds turning in, turning it into what it became. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic series. I, I thoroughly urge uh, anyone who's interested to check it out. Um, you mentioned as well about um, getting people involved. I mean, you're very passionate about women and girls in STEM, aren't you? You've published a range of children's books as well on the topic. It's an extremely important part of science communication, isn't it? The next generation. Definitely. 
Definitely. I, throughout my career, had done so many talks in schools and colleges. And so I was kind of reaching students of 16 plus, um, often girls, but also boys. And I wasn't really, you know, over the years, I wasn't really seeing the needle move in terms of addressing the gender inequalities in STEM. And so I was kind of, I went through a phase of like, why is it that I studied physics and and maths and then went on to do engineering and didn't even think twice about it? I only felt awkward about being a woman in engineering once I was in industry. But I was like, why, why did I just take to it like a duck to water? And everybody else seems to drop out of these subjects early on. And then I realized it's because I was kind of, I was in that mindset from a very early age. So when you have a dad that's constantly saying, why do you think that works? Or how do you think that, you know, what do you think of the components in, in that toy or whatever? Um, I, I, I realized that actually engineering and the interest in engineering starts so much earlier on than 16 years old. Yeah. And so that is what really sort of motivated me to write these children's books also, you know, when you study engineering and, and STEM subjects, you tend to be more mathematical. Like I like to express things in equations. Yeah. Um, it's so much, you know, of how my brain works. And so I'm not really a wordsmith. And so it just, all the ingredients came together where I just thought, right, I'm going to write children's books um, and really try to address these stereotypes in STEM. So yeah. the first book in a series of four is called An Engineer Like Me. And it's about a little girl, a little brown girl, who goes about her everyday life um, spotting the engineering. Yeah. And, you know, in writing the book, I already suspected this, but when you really have to drill down and write a book about something, you realize, hang on a minute, there is very few things in our day that isn't engineering. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and if I can help young people to see that, um, that would be my job done to just make them appreciate that everywhere you look, there's engineering. Yeah. I became very aware of, of uh, the issue when I did A-level physics because there was not one single girl in my A-level physics class. And we're talking 15, 16 students. Now, obviously, as a 17-year-old fresh out of school, I was fairly disappointed in that. Um, but... It's there. It's there. And we're talking 2001 here, 2001, early 2000s. Um, So I became very aware early on that I I actually, you know, why is why is this class entirely boys? Did the girls not like physics or? um, But you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We need to uh, we need to show that this this there isn't a stigma. Absolutely. And it brings me nice on to my next question, because my running coach is very passionate about getting women and young girls into running and sport. Why do you think we're here in 2021 continuing to have issues with that? Well, well, with, with, with very, sports, science, everything. Yeah. I mean, this is a very multi-layered issue. And uh, once I scratched the surface, um, I was like, oh, gosh, actually, this goes beyond IQ because girls and boys have very little difference in terms of their academic achievements if anything girls tend to find it easier to concentrate and so they're able to get better marks um, at that sort of age 
And really it's about EQ, emotional intelligence, and just navigating that whole landscape when you're that age. You know, I think girls around the age of 10 or 11, they're trying to figure out their identity. I don't know what it's like for boys. I can't speak for you guys, but you know, I just think around that age, they're trying to figure themselves out. They're trying to see what's cool. Um, I think for girls, it's a lot about self-esteem and confidence and, you know, we have a tendency as women to sort of doubt ourselves. We're scared of putting our hands up to give an answer because we don't want to look stupid in front of everyone. We don't want to um, get anything wrong. And, you know, it's that classic example of like, you know, if there's a job um, posting or vacancy and it tells you all the skills you need, um, if a guy has six out of 10 of those skills, they'll apply for the job and they'll be like, oh, I'll figure it out. I'll teach myself, I'll, you know. Yeah. The girls, if they have nine out of 10 of those skills, they still won't apply because they. we always feel like we need 10 out of 10 yeah. in everything. And I think that's an emotional intelligence issue rather than academic ability, you know. And yeah. so I've been trying to figure out actually how to address this issue. And it's so complex because it's about the mind and it's about the way we're nurtured and it's about the way we're encouraged and supported and um i'm not claiming to be anywhere near the answer yet but i'm doing my bit to sort of know that i went through those issues myself and try to that's where the mentoring comes in yeah you know and so i'm trying to do my little bit to to move the needle in this regard. Yeah, well, it's important to do that bit, but you're bang on about that age. We've got an 11 year old daughter and she's going through that right now, figuring out what, you know, where she is. And, and you talk about the coolness and stuff like that. I think it's slightly late. I would say it's later for boys. Wouldn't you agree, Cats? And it's older. I would say it's older than that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely my experience with, with the teaching. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you do see, certainly when I've been teaching A-level, um, and I'd agree with what you were saying with, with with the physics as well. I, I reckon about 80% of the people I've taught A-level physics have been, have been boys, yeah. but they have been boys. Like they've been, yeah. you know, they've been, uh, you know, um, typical lads, if, if you like, but the, the girls up top, they do seem to mature mentally that much faster, you know, and I'm sure, you know, a couple of years later, lads will catch up, but there definitely is a difference in the way they develop in that area. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, that's i mean we, i'm sure we could talk all day about this but we're going to have a quick break uh we're going to talk cat's curiosity this is the bit where cats brings us a piece of science news that has interested him over the last week and we're going to see what he's got what have you got mate okay um i wouldn't necessarily class this as science news but it's definitely interested me okay uh, and i've taken inspiration from the way that conspiracy theorists um boil everything down beyond its most simple point to try and dismiss entire areas of science so one example would be flat earthers who will deny gravity by poking a hole in something cavendish did 200 years ago ignoring yeah. everything else that has gone from it okay. uh, and it's almost as if, they, as if they think that the first explanation that's arrived at in any kind of topic uh, is the definitive explanation and if you poke holes in that nothing else matters so i thought i'd give you just two examples of accurate predictions that have been made in science uh, by people who are so far off in the actual explanation um, <laughs> that it's comical. So, okay, go. Uh, 1811, a guy called Johann Frederick Meckel, and I'll probably pronounce that wrong, so apologies yeah. to everyone. He predicted that the human embryo would have gills, okay? He predicted that correctly, and in 1827, it was found that the human embryo did have gills. Okay. 
What do you think his explanation for that accurate prediction was? This is to both of you. I would say something along the lines of evolving in the womb through the fish to the human, something like that. You've read that before, haven't you? I haven't. I promise you, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to get. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Is it right? I was going to pass it on. Yeah, you got oh. it. Oh. I spent too long around conspiracy theorists. <laughs> he he thought he had a prediction that humans were the perfect species, yeah. and uh, when the human embryo developed, it developed, and it had a stage of every less perfect species fish being one of them so yeah. he made the prediction that the embryo would have gills 16 years later they found that they did have gills and in large parts of the scientific community until darwin came and obviously superseded it um that was an accepted explanation for an accurate prediction so there we go last one last one okay um this is a uh uh geography one right. so uh dr samara i'll pass this one to you um, in the 18th century, geologist James Hutton accurately predicted that inside the earth, we would find veins of granite rock running through multiple layers of rock. He made that accurate prediction, then it was found, but his explanation was way off. Why do you think he made that prediction? Why did he make the prediction? What was his scientific explanation, do you think, for um, saying that we would find these veins of granite rock? gosh because of the volcanoes he wants to give an explanation of why they erupt or like so he was seeing that they were like outlets for these granite rock presumably he thought they were molten so like observations based on, on volcanoes and stuff through yeah that that would be what a We'd expect from a geologist today. Dan, why do you think he accurately predicted I'm the existence going of these something a bit further out there, like an ancient species buried them in the earth or something like that? Uh, well, both of you are wrong. He oh. predicted the existence, accurately predicted the existence of these veins uh, because he thought that the earth was a living organic body and that these veins literally were but actual veins. Parts, inevitable, uh, how would I say, they, they were uh, going to inevitably form due to the way he predicted the earth to grow. Uh, and the purpose of the earth was to provide a habitable um, place just for humans. Uh, so yeah, and then and then literally, uh, according to to what I've been reading anyway, um, when they did find them, his his it took nearly a century before his idea was completely side sideswiped. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's 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 so interesting, isn't it? Where you come up with this amazing theory and you prove it right, and it's all about again creativity. Yeah, like applying some crazy idea. <laughs> to the evidence that you're seeing and that being wrong, essentially. But who's to say that whatever um, replaces that crazy idea isn't wrong itself? Is the it's, correct it's, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you've hit the nail on the head, though, because what did replace that was wrong itself. <laughs> what did replace that was the contracting Earth theory, uh, and that wasn't the reason for these veins either. So, um, so there we go. Yeah, brilliant. Science. Love it. Right, thanks for that, mate. Thank you very much. Um, right, so let's move on. So, um, Katz and I spend a lot of our time trying to refute flat earthers. Would you be surprised if we told you that they aren't just a group that get laughed at, but in fact have a people and organisations that take it very seriously and have a very large following? 
I wouldn't be surprised. No? No. <laughs> no. They are... They are. How many do you reckon there are cats? I would say millions. Uh, worldwide, yeah. 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 At least millions worldwide of, of actual mm. people who believe it. Have you had an experience yourself with, with flat earthers? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah? And do you know, it really, it really goes back to all of that about interpretation of the data. Yes. You know, and, and I'm often, I once did a film with NASA where we were flying over Greenland and we, they have basically stripped out a P3 aircraft, which is an old World War II bomber plane and kitted it with the latest instruments to be able to monitor and measure the ice sheet that's sitting on top of Greenland. Nice, and they yeah. do this they do this mission every single year and they do the exact same zigzag over the ice sheet, um, collecting data. And I said, you know, so is the climate changing? Should we be worried? And they just shook their head and they were like, we're just here to collect the data. We're not going <laughs> to interpret it. And I just thought, I love that neutrality yeah. because I definitely want to be part of the group that's collecting the data because there's a lot of creativity in that. Like, how can we collect certain numbers and what instrument should we use combined with another instrument? You know, there's a lot of innovation in that. Um, but the actual interpretation, you know, it's really, it's a choice, you know, which camp you want to sit in, you know, is is climate changing or is it not? You know, is our activity having a massive impact or is it not? I don't want to get involved in all of that because then it becomes really political and I'm just an absolute true like scientist at heart where I just want to collect the data um, and that's it. And I try and steer, steer clear of, of any kind of politics. And often I trip up and I, I end up having an opinion about something and I'm like, do you know what? I don't want to make it about that. I don't want to have a debate about this. Yeah. I just want to collect the data. Yeah, I, mean, I I'm the same. But I I I constantly have opinions of people online. Um, but I mean, cats. I don't I don't debate the flat earthers. But cats has a good go every now and again that you make. Um... <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. You can but end this... up going down such a rabbit hole. It's very entertaining though when cats debates <laughs> them because uh, he, he more often than not he he comes out on top. <laughs> Well, oh, I, think, good. I think what you've got to do is 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 talk to the people who are on the edge of that rabbit hole about to fall down and yeah. just highlight to them because they're watching because they want proof that the earth is flat. You know, if you can highlight to them that the person talking to actually has fundamental gaps in their understanding and knowledge, then hopefully those people watching will be like, oh yeah, that's a bit silly of me and move on to something else. You've got to have quite a thick skin though. Yeah. I think. Definitely, and that yeah. might get back to the sort of gender differences because um, sometimes you know i just i i really believe strongly in something and then i put it out there in public and then i'm just like why did i start this um but at the same time i think it's important to have a voice and ah uh, again it's it's very social media you know when i started all this it just wasn't around yeah and uh, so I think, you know, that's a whole profession in itself dealing with that side of things. It's very interesting that you say that, um, especially what you said about earlier about uh, where you said, like, if, if, a, if a woman goes to apply for a job and she knows nine out of 10 things, like you won't commit until you've got everything absolutely right. There's very few women flat earthers, is there, cats, um, who come yeah. out and, and, and admit that, that they believe the earth is flat. Very, very few. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah, I can only think of one. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's really really interesting yeah. i'm gonna have to do some homework on that it ties in this. with what you were saying in, in yeah. you know being absolutely sure in something uh, yeah, I think it's the I think it's the approach um, towards men and women. You know, we are as women, we're very hesitant about having an opinion yeah. because often, you know, loud voices can come in and just go, "You're just wrong," yeah. and then we're like, ah. "Yeah." Um, and so, in order to be able to sort of uh, stand up amongst all of that, we've got to have a really, really loud voice, and that takes a lot. Uh, so much so that it's actually quite draining, and then we're just like, Do "You know what? I can't. I, can I can't. I yeah. can't fight this." Yeah. Um, but I think that culture is um, is changing. And as time goes on, I do see more women standing up for what they believe in. And um, yeah. so it is tending towards a very good direction. It is. You just got to look at the the US footballers at the moment, the women US footballers who are, who are trying to get the, the same wage, aren't they? Yeah. Um, it, on that flat earth scene, it, the, a lot of the males in it are, you know, the, they call themselves alpha males. They're, bravado i know something you don't know uh they're very much like that aren't they cats the, the male flat earthers yeah and i think i think that's you've hit the nail on the head the, the whole i know something you don't know is is what they cling on to and yeah. i think you know we've talked about this in the past that academically probably they have missed a trick at school you know they, they have come out and probably not probably not at the best experience at school you know and and there's they've got lots of, of gaps and and now having that knowledge that even their teachers didn't know at school suddenly puts them back above everybody else yeah and sometimes you just think it's well i often think it's just too difficult to try and change someone's mind um and so you know kind of just stay with your opinion because you know i, I i'm not going to be able to change it and and this comes back to a lot of the work that i do which is very much about inner sort of like knowing um rather than trying to com convince everyone outside of you um and it's kind of I think we've we've especially with social media we've become very outward looking where we care about other people yeah. sort of validating our opinions and we care about what other people think and that I think can be very dangerous territory and so I run back to my little science world where people are just collecting the data yeah and I'm just, yeah okay that but feels safe the collecting the data thing is funny because it a lot of the recent flat earthers they really try and bring science into it they really and a good example is they don't believe in gravity they don't believe gravity is th as a thing and they attribute the effects of it to what they call relative density so they're just saying if a, if an object is denser than something else it will fall um and that is kind of really the people that push that on youtube they really try and ingrain it in science don't they cats so, that you know they'll they'll come out and they'll draw diagrams um, and the people that follow them will accept that as the science. It's very tough and very difficult to combat, isn't it, Katz? Yeah, very much. And and I think the problem is um, that you can you can show something that's easy to understand. You can take uh, an egg, which is a famous, believe it or not, somebody put an egg in water and then put salt in the water to make the salt more dense and the egg grows. Okay, so you can take that and you can say, look, I'm changing the density of the water and that's defeating gravity, if you like. Um, but they'll stop there and rather than ask the next question, why? The fundamental, yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's it, they'll collect some data, but they'll never just say, okay, well, what is the reason behind that? It's just like, this is what I've seen, that's it. It's the fundamental, isn't it? Like, why down? You know, it's, if, if there's a relative density, it could be either way, but why down? Uh, is, is that is that frustrating for you, considering you worked on something like Crash Course Physics? No, it's not frustrating at all, because um, I 
of am of the opinion, and I've actually I've talked to a lot of scientists, scientists that I really respect that have the same opinion, which is that do you know what? I'm happy to be proved wrong. Yeah. You know, and so all of these ideas, you know, that egg experiment, all of that stuff could lead to a shift in thinking. You know, we may be missing something here. You know, we we haven't explained everything. We don't have all the answers. And so some far out idea, which may not make sense and I may not agree with, might actually be the one thing that creates a brand new way of thinking, yeah, which could then lead to finding more answers elsewhere. So, you know, being open to being wrong, I think is a really good thing, especially in science. Um, actually, science is the one discipline that has really... Uh, allowed me to sort of deal with failure because I think we again live in a world where we just we can't be wrong we can't make mistakes and and science is all about making mistakes absolutely um, seeing and learning from the error of our ways so bring on the flat earthers that, you know that, yeah don't say that too loudly uh, that was almost an identical answer to to what Professor Jim Al Khalili said about being wrong he said almost exactly the same thing about there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with being proved wrong. Who knows what else we haven't discovered? Um, so yeah, brilliant. Humility. Yes. Um, yeah. Have you had any other experiences with other other conspiracy theories? Um, I mean, no, no. Nothing, I mean, nothing that really springs to mind. I just think it's it. It is really. Uh, fascinating when people have such a different opinion yeah um and i think when you're scientifically trained it can be very difficult to bring somebody else's point of view on board because you know when you've just when you've just come up with a mathematical equation that explains how turbulence works and then someone goes no it's completely wrong it's it's done another way and you're like but but the equation works (laughs) out it's just it's taken me ages to get here and I can't not see it this way. Um, I think that is a massive skill in itself to be able to really adapt, be adaptable. But, yeah. you know, we've already mentioned Charles Darwin, yeah. um, who says that it's not the strongest or the fittest that survives. It's the species that's most adaptable. Yeah. Um, so I do try to, to, to take that on board. But I must say, you know, when I finished my doctorate, um, I had you know, written a couple of journal papers. And one of them, my very first one that had to be peer reviewed, got sent back to me because my results were not in line with what everyone before me had had discovered. Okay. And I had to look at my data again. And in order to get peer reviewed, had to try and sort of be in line with what had gone before. And, um, you know, I, I was able to see my data differently, but it's kind of, you know, that's a massive part of the scientific process is being able to build upon what other people have done. So I do, I do find it interesting when someone comes in and just smashes through that and goes, nope, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you think the importance of introducing STEM at an early age is enough to combat these sorts of theories, but it sounds like you're up for them because you would like it to be uh, the normality to be challenged. Yeah. I think if it's, um, if it's driven by a motivation to advance humanity, yes. then I think it's a good thing. If it's very ego-driven and I want to be right and I'm going to, you know, 
come in and sort of like skew the data so that I'm proving I'm right, then then I'm not such a big fan. Yeah. Well, I'm not a fan at I th- all. I think so. that's where 99% of these sorts of conspiracy theories are coming from. Um, right. It, so that's why I'm like, oh, yes, yeah. care of that. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, we, we, me and Katz have talked about it at length, but we, we think there's a majority of them are, are in it for notoriety, financial, uh, you know, going against the grain just for the sake of it sort of thing. Um, I don't think there's any, there's hardly any genuine people, is there, Katz? No, no, and it's a, it's a shame. I mean, some of them carry out some fantastic uh, investigations. Yes. Uh, there's a team called the Globuster team um, who've, who've got access to all sorts of equipment. They've got access to a, a fiber optic gyroscope. It costs them $20,000 to, to show that they, they, couldn't measure the the rotation of the earth and they measured the rotation of the earth and then um did exactly what you said there it was very ego driven it was okay well that didn't go our way so we'll yeah. find an alternate explanation we did not measure the rotation of the earth and then yeah. and they said know, they, they said uh, the ether didn't they it was the ether. yeah they then invented yeah. they brought the ether back yeah. and said well, it's the ether rotating yeah. around yeah. the earth must yeah. be you know yeah. yeah i mean unfortunately science is a very expensive mm. pursuit you know mm. especially with technology just becoming more and more advanced and more and more expensive and so you know it's you have to look at who's driving it you know who's funding it and that can often inform you about whether it's um biased or not yeah absolutely um thank you so much your your insight and all that has been fascinating um we're going to finish with something called the scientist game this is a new game uh, where our guest faces off against cats. So what I'm going to do is start reading some facts about a scientist in chronological order, and the first person to correctly guess the scientist wins the point. Now, it's currently one all. So cats lost the first one, but he pulled it back uh, last time we did it with Alexander Graham Bell. It was a, a great shout. So uh, are you ready? You both ready? I am. Go for I, it. I'll get my, uh, I'll get my, my uh, music. <laughs> oh, no, that's not the right music. Where's my music? No. No! Let's play them all. I've lost my music. Why is my... I've lost my... I've lost my music. I had tense music. Oh, blim it out. Right. No. Okay. Right. Here we go. Let's go. Right. Don't worry. I edit all that bit out. I'll just say, uh, here we go. Let's do the scientist game. So, first one. Born on May the 11th, 1918 in New York. Edison. Nope. Graduated from MIT in 1939. In 1941, worked on the Manhattan Project. Earned a PhD in physics in 1942 from Princeton. In 1949, published the first diagrams which were named after him. I'm Feynman, Richard Feynman. Oh, well done. Well done. Hot up. Wow, that was quick. Oh. I thought you'd get the next one. In 1965, earned the Nobel Prize for his work on quantum electrodynamics. Oh, cats. I didn't know anything else other than... <laughs> obviously, we teach Feynman diagrams at Abel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Feynman. I, I can never pronounce his name right either. Um, how do you pronounce it? Is it Feynman or Feynman? I thought it was Feynman. I thought it was yeah. Feynman, but am I wrong? Who knows? <laughs> you're wrong. You're both wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Well done, mate. So uh, two one to you. Oh, uh, mate, you, you can't. Don't get too confident because I know what you're like. Uh, I'm, I'm not confident, but did, did we say best of three? No, and, and we didn't say best of three. No, no. <laughs> I've got any more. 
uh, I'm still bummed about my music. Anyway, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shanita. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, where can we find you on the interweb? Oh, gosh. Uh, website, uh, myfullname.com. And then I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Okay. Cool. We'll put all the links in the description. Yeah, yeah, we'll put the links to the Crash Course Physics as well. As I said before, please do check out. It is fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Next week, we have got uh, Cara Santa Maria, who does the Talk Nerdy podcast, uh, Cats. So that should, oh, be, right, cool. that should be a good one. Uh, but we're done. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.